You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. Joining me as is one, as usual every week, is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I trust you're well also. And I trust all our um, uh, listeners are are enjoying life uh, and autumn here in Australia and perhaps spring somewhere else in the world. And quite so. And about one week away from the federal election, um, May 18. Um, well, it's terribly what... exciting, Giles, but you and I are soccer supporters. And will there ever be anything to compare with uh, this season's Champions League? I don't think I've ever seen more exciting football or more dramatic comebacks. But I suppose that's not what this podcast is about. And more the shame, actually, more the shame, because we'd be lovely to talk about football, particularly those two matches, which have been brilliantly exciting. Um, certainly more exciting than our election campaign and the damn debates that we've had over the last um, last couple of weeks, which I forced myself to watch and listen to and read about, and um, I don't think we're any the wiser about anything. Um, what did you learn about it? If I, I just asked you for your instant snap response of the what, most important thing you got out of it, those three debates, what was it? I think the last debate, I think, when they gave their vision for Australia, I think Scott Morrison, if I can sum him up accurately, said, um, let's have less traffic jams by having more roads. And at least Bill Shorten had some sort of vision for the future for 2030. And I guess that was pretty much it. Um, really, the um, the government hasn't been able to come up with any constructive policy announcements at all. Um, the debate has been all around um, Labor's policies. Um, particularly on the cost of climate change and energy policies, um, you know, and you've had that ridiculous modelling from Bill um, from Brian Fisher, which has been thoroughly debunked, but at the same time has already got a lot of traction in much of the media. I don't know whether anyone actually takes this stuff seriously or not anyway. Well, Giles, I don't know whether I, I, it changes I, minds. One of the things I was complaining uh, to someone who was a quite senior media person about was there just hasn't been enough... I mean, here at Renew Economy, it has, but uh, in the mainstream media, and I include TV and radio, not just the uh, uh, News Corp, but the ABC and, and the Fairfax Press, the basic facts of the ALP policy, it's all been this question of what it costs. No, no one even gets into the basic facts of what the actual Labor policy proposal is or, you know, how far along the way we are to achieving it. That, that's, that's what gets me. And I might say, you know, I mean, for Scott Morrison, as he said in one of those debates, to say, and, and look, this is not a partisan comment. It's a, it's a statement of absolute fact. These, these are the guys that knocked back the NEG and sacked the Prime Minister over the fact that he was going to have uh, an, uh, an emissions-related leg to the NEG. And uh, he now stands up and says he cares about climate change. I mean, it's a complete and utter joke, really, that his party does. Uh, and the, the obvious point that everyone has made is that only Scott, because he's a good marketer, let's face it, is the only one of, of, of that uh, uh, bunch of people allowed out in public. Well, Melissa Price has not been seen. She's the Environment Minister, and she wasn't even seen this week after the major and landmark UN report about you know all the threat to species, a million species. Um, that's sort of very, very important. Um, Angus Taylor has only been seen and heard on Sky News and in, in the Daily Telegraph saying some ridiculous things about electric vehicles and what have you. And look, it's occurred to me that you know Scott Morrison was saying 
in the last debate that I will lead from the middle. Well, he won't be because we know that with this government and the makeup of the parties, they're not going to be able to move on climate or energy, uh, really, no matter what happens. So um, it, it reminds me of the old thing between my brother and myself uh, when we couldn't decide who was going to have which part of the cake. Uh, the rule was one person cut it and the other one chose. If Bill wants to cut the cake, I, I think I'll choose where the middle is. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, look, you actually produced a couple of really good pieces um, that's sort of pissing in your pocket this week. Um, one was on the costs of the Labor policy, which has been sort of subject to great debate and, um, and, and, and some absolute bollocks about sort of um, emissions um, reduction costs. But you made the point that it's actually not going to cost um, very much at all. Um, and you might explain that better. And, and then I'm going to get um, on, on to another interesting article that actually adds to that. Um, and, and, but look, let, tell me about your sort of modelling first, just on um, very quickly on, well, on the Labor policies. I wouldn't uh, dignify it with the term modelling. It's a basic spreadsheet, Giles. It just simply looks at the ALP policies and says that the 50% renewable energy policy, so the overall 45% emissions reduction slogan uh, won't really be 45% emissions reduction of Australia's 550 million tonnes of carbon. Everyone knows that who, who, who actually reads the policy. My point is no one actually bloody well reads the document document. But I mean, the electricity part, 50% renewable electricity uh, probably won't cost anything very much to people because as we know, the price of coal and the price of gas is very high and there's a drought on, so hydro electricity is tight. Uh, whereas we can build as much wind and solar if we had the transmission as we wanted, and I think that will help to keep prices down. If we look at the stuff that's covered under the um, safeguard scheme, which is where the 45% reduction is supposed to come from, that's non-electricity facilities and big emitters, the 250 uh, big emitters that emit over uh, 25,000 tonnes, a lot of that will be uh, exempt or not subject to much carbon uh, reduction because, because it's uh, energy intensive trade exposed. Uh, and of the rest, uh, I think it, uh, the cost of actually reducing it's uh, fairly minimal when you look at the uh, price of ACUs, and let's not get into what they are, or even the cost of buying international permits. And then we can go on and say that if the RECs, uh, which is the renewable energy certificates. certificates, could actually be used in satisfaction of that obligation, uh, then you could pretty much guarantee to all these emitters that they wouldn't be paying more than, I don't know, 10 to $20 uh, a tonne of abatement. And that, uh, that actually would be returned by them effectively in the form to everyone else in the form of a lower electricity price. Because if, it, if you need $55 to get wind or solar going and you're getting $20 of it from an REC certificate that you've sold to a carbon emitter, then you know, you're at $35, $40 for your actual electricity. And you know, there's a lot of big businesses and households that wouldn't, would be quite happy with that outcome. And um, so what you get then is that you get cheaper electricity, you get lower cost emissions for industry, and very happily you get an extra incentive for more wind and solar farms to be built. Uh, it sounds like happy days. Maybe we should break out the champagne jars. <laughs> Maybe we should form an all, a new um, political party. But um, no, but, but that, that effectively, we think, is, um, is embedded somewhere in the Labor policy or will occur to them um, if and when they get into government. So, um, well, well, as someone pointed out to me, there is actually, um, and I've forgotten the name of it now, but you can actually buy green power right now and voluntarily surrender your certificates. So, you yeah, know, but that's bloody expensive, actually. But it wouldn't be if RECs were, you know, if you, it, it wouldn't Absolutely. be. Absolutely. If it was traded on a proper market, yeah, but if you actually buy green power now through, well, if a household tries to buy green power through any of its retailers, they're usually paying top dollar. I'm not too sure why they pay top dollar because the price of all, um, RECs um, has actually come down a lot. But um, 
for households, yep. not the best thing. But anyway, look, it's available. It's there. It fits in with current markets. Um, fascinating. And I just think it's actually going to go to the whole sort of debate that's, that's going to happen, um, you know, should the election go Labour's way, that um, we are going to have more ambitious um, emissions reduction policies and they're not going to be very expensive. Now, look, we do actually have a guest. We early, Earlier today, um, we had the pleasure of talking to um, Ivan Higueras, who is the international head of a Spanish solar firm called Grand Solar. Now, not a huge presence in um, Australia, David, but um, quite a big play on the international scheme, including at the world's biggest solar project, one megawatt, um, one gigawatt, sorry, project in uh, United Arab Emirates. But, um, but let's see what he had to say. So he had some really interesting things to say about the international market and about Australia. Here is um, Ivan Igueres from Grand Solar. Ivan Igueres, the International Managing Director for Grand Solar. Thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me. Look, Grand Solar has been involved in Australia, not in a huge capacity. I think you've recently completed the Lilyvale Solar Farm in North Queensland. Um, but you've also been a very major participant in the um, the global industry. And we'll come to some of those projects later on. Just broadly, is there any way of just giving like a broad brush impression of what's happening in solar industry and solar installations and the creation of solar farms around the world? And then I'd probably like to get some sort of flavour of, you know, where Australia fits into that. We're seeing a big boom here, but um, we don't get much perspective of how this compares and what's happening internationally. Well, uh, you know, when, when I explain the, the solar world or the solar demand, there's always uh, three main markets in China, uh, you know, India and the US. China being roughly 50% of the uh, 100 gigawatts of, uh, of the market. Um, India getting to uh, you know, 10 gigawatts, and the US also between 8 and 10. After that, you have what we call the giga markets, uh, and these are you know, coming and going with time. Um, and Australia obviously have a, a, a big impact when the you know, record installation you know, was last year, then it comes a little slowdown, and we all hope that it come back again to this uh, over uh, one gigawatt installation a year. Mm. You've been involved. Even could you just uh, for, for, for Grand Solar, what, what's the biggest market uh, at the moment, and where do you see the biggest market for you guys over the next two or three years? So we have uh, our main six offices are US, uh, Mexico, Brazil, South Africa, um, Dubai, and Australia. And uh, Australia has been uh, uh, our target market for the next year. Uh, we're pretty active also in Mexico, and, and as you uh, know. Or probably no Spain now and Southern Europe is, is coming back. But Australia is now our main market for, in particular, 2019 and 2020. And why is that then? Well, uh, you know, we've been, let's say, uh, moving and progressing in several projects here, um, other than Lilybell. Um, so we have now doing three and four uh, contracts that we hope to land soon. Um, and that would represent... Uh, probably, yeah, the, the largest amount of projects in, in our pipeline now. Can you say how many megawatts uh, are involved in those contracts? No one's going to hold you to it and we don't want the names. I'm just trying to get a, a rough idea of how much capacity we're talking about here or maybe you'd like rather talk in terms of dollars or something. 
<laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. So uh, in Queensland, we're targeting another project the same size of, of Lilyvale, over 100 megawatts. Uh, in Victoria, another one um, of a similar size. And then there's a third one in Queensland also that uh, may be bigger, bigger like 200 megawatts. These are our, say, more close uh, projects that we're targeting. And how are you finding competition at the moment? Uh, like, I mean, uh, and within the context that there is competition, and I understand things are still very competitive. Uh, I could quote some numbers, but I won't. But I mean, and within that, what do you see as your competitive ad advantage? Well, we believe, or I believe, that uh, the Australian market fits very well to our business model. You see, we, we are a specialized company. We only do solar. We're not a contractor that uh, you know with multi technologies. And uh, we also have all the resources in-house. So we have our own engineering company, our own product company, hardware company, and we also have the commissioning uh, a team. So that, I think, gives us a particular strength for Australia where, you know, it's not so easy to uh, find a specialized company for the different components and having all them in-house, like a one-stop one shop, we can control better the timings and, and uh, overall project. Now, this might be a bit of a Dorothy Dixon question, but um, what are your observations about some of the trials and tribulations that we've seen in the large-scale solar contracting business and recently? I mean, um, many of our listeners would be aware that RCR Tomlinson, a very, very big engineering firm in Australia, came to grief um, largely as a result of problems at... Um, at, uh, well, significant problems at one joint um, uh, solar farm and, and, and many problems elsewhere. And more recently, Tempo Australia looks like it's come to grief with a solar farm in Victoria, um, presumably going to be argued for the um, for the benefits of the um, people who specialise, as, as you just mentioned. But I'm just wondering if it also goes to some of the issues around the sort of the tightening um, regulatory market and the connection regime in Australia. Well, for me, it's very difficult to, to comment on, on, on other companies. But uh, uh, what I can tell, uh, you know, after the experience that we have in other countries, um, for instance, uh, South Africa, when we went there in 2012 and, and we had to, together with, you know, the new solar industry players, we had to renegotiate and, and adopt the existing codes to accommodate it to the new solar plants and, and, and wind farms capabilities. So we, we encounter Australia as a very of the uh, regulated market and um, and quite tough in certain aspects, uh, but that's not necessarily uh, bad. In our, or my eyes, is actually uh, you know in our favors because one you can uh, you know differentiate yourself by adapting to to this tougher restriction. It is true that lately, um, as you probably know, there's been um, several changes on on the regulations and and that uh, uh, in particular on the testing. Uh, on the R2 testing on the commission of the plants that, uh, you know, slow down the, the, the plants and, and the projects. Uh, but overall, I think this is very good it's, uh, and it's not, let's say, nothing very uh, different from, from what we've seen in other countries. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, how, how the things can go wrong on, on a solar project, uh, well, basically, it's, it's time, time management and, and, of course, the commissioning time is, uh, is what uh, is critical with the interconnection agreement, the GPS and, and et cetera. So we deployed a lot of resources from day one uh, to start working with AEMO and uh, in our case, PowerLink and, and all the stakeholders involved in interconnection to make sure that once we get to uh, the finishing of the, late, the latest stages of the plan, we have everything 
agreed and there's no time to you know come back and, and double check assumptions uh, I, I think that's, the, that's the so just one question yeah. on that uh, uh, um, are you and is the industry still epc the contractors still taking um uh liquidated damages clauses for you know uh energization or or, or you know because that was a problem with one of the issues with rcr um how what's the trend now in those kind of contract terms you know, every time that there is a project financing on a, on, on a solar plant, uh, LDs have to appear because at the end, uh, the project companies are uh, basically uh, SPVs with a limited budget, and the risk of delays have to be uh, compensated by, by the contractor. Uh, there is certain, uh, you know, assumptions when, when you have a, a customer like, like big utilities where they like to, to take that or they're comfortable taking those risks. But uh, what we've seen uh, in Australia and other uh, countries, every time there is a project financing, uh, yeah, all of these are uh, based on the shoulders of the contractor to finish in on time. And can I just ask um, a little bit, uh, you know, something, a more general question. I guess it's about like panel prices have come down, I understand to about, depending on how, how good the panel is, to something like, I don't know, US, 25 cents a watt or something. What are the sort of trends in other costs more generally, like capital costs? Are you seeing the balance of system, inverter prices, you know, and, and uh, I guess the AC-DC ratios? Can you talk a little bit more about how you're seeing it from your point of view, just about those things? Okay, so starting with the models, um, as I mentioned before, China is still like 50% of, of the demand. And so the price of models is very... Uh, dependent on the Chinese um, uh, policies. Um, as you probably know, a year and a half ago, the Chinese government issued a couple of programs favoring the high efficiency models, and that ended up uh, uh, favoring or increasing the, the production of uh, monoperc and, and very high efficient uh, models that get uh, uh, price uh, rocketing. Um, now, the situation has change a little bit, uh, also with the incorporation of bifacial models um, that are pretty much the same monoperc, but uh, as you know, the backside uh, also uh, absorbs some uh, irradiance and, and, and produce electricity. So what, what we are seeing now, uh, there is like a two um, different dynamics in pricing. So you have the high-end, uh, high-efficient, whether monofacial or bifacial models, uh, at certain price because of the demand in China. And on the other side, the more standard uh, product, uh, that's where prices are getting uh, still significant reductions. So what we have seen is that now you have to analyze the two uh, scenarios where you need high efficient models because you have some uh, uh, constraint in the space, um, then you have to pay a premium. Whether you have enough land, uh, then maybe going to the standard uh, models can give you the advantage of the price. Uh, so that's what we've seen in in, uh, in models and the gains in efficiency. Uh, well, you know this this uh, rule of thumb of having uh, five five bucks uh, or five bucks uh, increase every six months uh, was no longer uh, a, a rule that we can trust on because of different technologies. But the efficiencies uh, of the model we've seen, so Monoperc is reaching uh, 395, 400 at the end of the year. And um, 
and then the standards are you know, on the 330, the 335s. Uh, other question that you mentioned was the uh, the rest of the cost. Um, so uh, other than panels, we see inverters quite um, uh, stabilized in terms of pricing. Uh, we see also a trend moving from central inverters to uh, string inverters. That's also uh, particular in Australia because of the of the um, code regulation. Inverter, I mean, string inverters has a little more difficulties to comply with, but uh, we've seen. Uh, Certain suppliers are getting uh, uh, validated for for uh, GPSs, and the rest of the balance sheet uh, is pretty much driven by by the hardware, by the tracker companies. Uh, tracker now um, are evolving, um, also with the technology of, of panels. We're putting uh, more and more models on the trackers. So we now go into strings of uh, over 30, 30 models. And does end up in, in larger uh, structures, which again, you know, have to comply with the wind regulations and, and be designed for. So um, we've seen some reduction in, in the balance of plan, but not as, uh, uh, let's say, uh, dramatic at uh, the discounting prices that we've seen, at least for the standard silica uh, uh, models. That's fantastically helpful. Thank you. And, and what about the ACDC ratio? Uh, I'm thinking 125, 130% and even continuing to go up because module prices are coming down and you can squeeze a bit more out of return that way. You see that that ratio is uh, is what we were uh, seeing growing on the standard models. That ratio may not apply necessarily to bifacial, uh, where all the factors are, are have to be considered. Um, but uh, yeah, we've seen between 1.2 sometimes, like in, in, in this uh, uh, Dubai project, uh, in, in, in Middle East, uh, for the one gigawatt plan, we are going over 140. Uh, the, the main rationale there is that when you have high temperature in summer, the, the voltage drop. So um, if the modular prices are, uh, let's say, competitive, or, or, or uh, then you, is, is you're better off by installing more DC uh, to compensate uh, those losses during the summer when you have a lot of sun. Um, the other side of the coin is that during winter, you may be constrained by the, the capacity of the inverters or the transformer. Uh, and this uh, uh, is an economic um, um, calculus that you have to do, calculation you have to do to, to see where you're better off. I'll hand back to Charles in a second. I just wanted to ask one more question about batteries generally. Uh, firstly, are you seeing more requests to, to do or to think about batteries? And secondly, I'm wondering about the savings of putting a, a, a DC connected battery on, you know, connected with a solar farm as opposed to putting, I don't know, the battery closer to the load somewhere and having to go through the efficiency bits and pieces? That's, that's a great question. Um, so let me start for the second one. Uh, we, we have developed our own uh, solution for DC coupling uh, together with a US uh, uh, manufacturer, Alencon. Um, and the reason maybe... Uh, not on the efficiency side. So if if I were to design the plan from the, the scratch, I would rather put the battery close to the uh, medium voltage and and, uh, and on AC side. But uh, uh, this solution of DC-DC coupling allows you to plug in batteries to existing facilities, uh, what we call the retrofit. And this is a huge market. For the same reason that we were talking about, these high DC-AC ratios, it means you are derating, you are um, consuming a lot of uh, uh, 
uh, electricity that they cannot evacuate because on these winter days or cold days, you're limited by, by the inverter or, or the evacuation uh, capacity. On those hours, you can uh, very easily store that electricity and then deploy it later. Uh, so we see a great potential in this DC coupling, even though it's not the more efficiency uh, or efficient solution. Um, but uh, on, on existing plants, uh, it can capture all the value. And how we see the, the quote, so we have our um, uh, storage company, E2SU. We're receiving a lot of lithium-ion uh, batteries. Uh, we only do it to this scale. Uh, mostly the calls are coming from um, uh, the U.S. So in the U.S., there's two big markets uh, in Massachusetts, the smart program, and also California, where um, a lot of developers and IPPs are installing batteries just to sell uh, electricity at the sport market. Uh, the rest of the of the offers that we're entertaining, um, to be honest, uh, is uh, pretty much on, on R&D basis or pilot projects because the what I'm sensing is that most of our customers are waiting to see how the prices uh, declines take place and they're not very uh, let's say uh, keen in uh, in being early adopters of the technology which is probably the the main problem all the battery suppliers are, are facing these days that's pretty interesting stuff look i've just got a couple of quick questions to wrap up um one just about that abu dhabi project as you mentioned it's one gigawatt i think at the time it sent a record lower pro lowest price of about 2.4 cents us um per kilowatt hour 24 dollars a megawatt hour um can you just explain roughly why the prices are so much cheaper in um the uae than say in australia is it just comes down to the cost of labor um the uh, cost of finance um, and perhaps it's the solar resources as well. Just to clarify that. It's probably a combination of the three. Um, the first one, obviously, the, the um, uh, cost of capital or equity in, in, in the Middle East is, is, is very low. Um, in this case, in, in the Dubai project and Diwa, um, our customer is, uh, is a consortium between Mazdar from Abu Dhabi and EDF from France. And they managed to put together a very competitive uh, financing package with very, very low interest rates. Um, the third thing is the, um, yeah, in terms of cost of labor, the labor in, in, in the Emirates is uh, definitely uh, much cheaper than in Australia or, or in the US or Europe. Uh, but mostly, I think, is the size. One thing that we have, uh, or that I personally discovered, is that. Uh, uh, you know, I used to tell my engineers, listen, every time we go to 50 megawatt, you know, the economy of scales are there. You, you don't get much. Well, I, I was I was wrong. When you get a plant size of this, uh, you know, 500 megawatt, um, you optimize the use of your resources. Because when you are, let's say, let's say uh, doing piling, you mobilize your teams, you, your machines, you start doing the piling, and then when you reach your optimum yield, you last maybe one or two months and then you have to de demobilize. On a larger plan, those months of full production are longer and then that's reduced a lot the cost. Uh, so one of, of uh, our founds is that uh, uh, size mm, does matter. <laughs> yeah. Size matters. And, uh, <laughs> size does matter. I 
Yeah, are, are you concerned at all about the um, the? Uh, there's a lot of confusion in Queensland now about this new rule, which um, requires um, not labourers but electricians to handle and install solar modules on on large scale solar farms. Um, are you concerned that that might put up the costs and actually make it actually quite difficult to source enough qualified personnel to do the jobs under the new requirements? Uh, yes, yesterday we were talking about that in in, in Brisbane. Uh, I think there being a lot of rush in this uh, decision and. And uh, of course, I mean, other than uh, pure operational things, we've seen similar things happen, for instance, in the states. In the states, uh, uh, each state has its own uh, regulation, and on something like Michigan or even Massachusetts, there is a certain ratio of certified electricians that need to be on site to perform the job. From the pure uh, construction perspective, um, the assembly of models, even the clicking of the connection of models, as you know, all the MC4 connectors, they are isolated. So you don't really uh, uh, need a special electrician to do that. So by, uh, let's say, imposing that you have uh, electrician on, 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 on those jobs, probably we're limiting the capacity as an industry to, to perform the job. And, and of course, that will end up in, in both uh, um, um, price increase or cost increases and, uh, and bottlenecks, more than anything, bottlenecks. So hopefully, you know, we come together to, to solve that, yeah. Well, hopefully, indeed. I think those new rules are due to come in on Monday, and I think there have been some um, emergency meetings called in Brisbane today and possibly um, on Thursday or Friday as well. Um, just one final question, maybe before we go. Um, Australia has an election coming up, um, two very different perspectives from the major parties about the future for renewables um, and on climate policies. Just how crucial for an international um, player like yourselves is the outcome of this upcoming election? Well, what we've, we've seen in, you know, the recent history is that uh, um, there was like a different um, ups and, and lows on, on the, uh, let's say, the push for renewable in Australia. And we would really like to have a stable uh, a situation. Um, I keep on saying on, on interviews that uh, solar industry, we, we, you know, we don't need any help. We don't need subsidies anymore. Uh, we don't need special considerations. We just need to have the same uh, conditions to compete, and that's the only thing we're asking. And uh, and that should be a political. It should be just uh, uh, basically basic trade uh, uh, principles. Um, so not not wanted to put to you know which political side will 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 help or not. Uh, uh, we just well, personally would like uh, an unstable uh, system or, or market uh, conditions that allow us to compete with other sources, uh, that's all. Yeah, good luck with stable, stable sources in such a big energy transition. I just don't think, I think everywhere in the world we have this discussion. Uh, I, I want to thank you. I thought a very interesting discussion. I love hearing about what's going on and the trends right now. It's interesting to me that batteries in California can, can, can work for arbitrage, but here in Australia, we're still thinking about it. That, very helpful. Thank you. Thanks very much. No, thank, thanks so much for the opportunity and uh, looking forward to having another conversation with you guys. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for the opportunity and uh, looking forward to having another conversation with you guys. And that was Ivan Higueras from Grand Solar. Um, David, um, very interesting perspective um, on a whole bunch of things. One, just the state of international markets and also some specifics about the um, solar construction and some of the technologies. 
Indeed, and uh, the interview speaks for itself. It reminds me of another topic which we probably won't get enough time to talk about today, and that is that I think there's a bit of a slowdown. But every time I think that, I hear someone like Ivan saying that they're bidding on a couple of new projects. So maybe this, um, a lot of people think that we are in a, a pause period, and I guess we are, but there also seems to be a lot of people keen to, to get a few deals done. But uh, I keep coming back to the same bugbears of let's um, get the regulators get on board with getting more transmission built, which will, will open it up. Let's get out of the, you know, the Queensland government, ET. Look, let's take the people in the ETU and the CFMEU and put them up against a wall, you know, and... Uh, no, I don't think we can do that, David, but we just want some sense out of them and just, um, it's just gotten ridiculous. Um, you know, it's just gone too far down the track and um, it's um, it's just absurd and it's just driving people crazy. And it's going to be interesting to follow from May 13, if there's no changes, that new rule, which um, requires only electricians to handle and install uh, solar modules on both large-scale solar plants and also larger-scale rooftop installations, um, is uh, quite ridiculous, going to add costs and delays, as um, Ivan Higuera said, on large-scale solar plants and some of the commercial-scale dealers, people dealing with large rooftops on businesses and supermarkets and things like that. Just say, and then there's the MLF, the Giles. There's the MLF factor uh, and there's the transmission constraint factor. These are things that are the real roadblocks in, a, in achieving the speed of transition that's actually required. One reason why it's required is so that uh, households and businesses can get some relief from higher prices. And uh, we had the good report from AEMO confirming what uh, you and I already know because we do the work every week showing that, you know, coal prices are really high. Some of the New South Wales coal mines, particularly Springvale out there, have got any trouble mining coal and actually delivering it. So, so that causes Mount Piper power station to be bid high. Gas prices, of course, are still as high as anything and will go up further with the oil price having gone up and the Aussie dollar gone down. And finally, there's a drought on. So, you know, Tassie Hydro doesn't want to produce electricity if it doesn't have to. So all of this means that uh, we've, we've sat through summer with very high prices. We're in the seasonally weak time of the year now, and there will be some more new wind and solar supply. But in the end, we still need a tonne more of it. And we need these roadblocks to be bloody well blowing up. Absolutely, we do. It was really interesting, actually, to find out that even the Lake Bonnie um, battery storage facility um, at the Lake Bonnie wind farm in South Australia has been delayed because there's been a bit of, you know, wrangle with the market operator and the network owner um, and the developer, which is Infogen Energy, um, over connection issues, and that's sort of putting it back um, at least three months. Um, just quite typical, really, of what's been happening. Um, interesting, though, in the AEMO report, lots of really interesting graphs showing the, um, the influence of solar just in um, reducing the grid, um, peaks, um, displacing coal, and in Western Australia, which is a grid we don't often get to talk about, but we might do in a month's time when we both travel over there, um, quite fascinating to see the share of renewables peaking at about 50% um, during the daytime, and the hot season peak, which is the summer peak, um, being reduced to the same level as winter peak, thanks to the um, influence of rooftop solar there. So really quite changing dynamics in the market um, well, Giles, uh, that we I think we should wind it up around here with our usual deep gratitude to the sponsors, but just point out that the high electricity prices, uh, there's, not, there's still not too many roadblocks in the way of doing rooftop solar or behind the meter, and no doubt that's why that sector is continuing to grow at a fantastic rate. Well, that's true, although I'd probably just add that there's a 
bit of a roadblock happening in Victoria at the moment because that rebate has been suspended for a couple of months because the this this financial year has been met. So basically, the calls are drying up, so that won't get going again until July. And there's still a few issues with some of the behind the meter limits imposed by networks. But we'll leave that for another day. We will thank the sponsors, What Watchers and Solarate Energy, who've both been here pretty much from the start of this podcast, and we thank them for it. We thank our listeners for support. And David, I thank you too. And um, we'll talk next week with a pre-election special. I'm looking forward to that as well, Charles. All right. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by SolarRay Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.